0: Welcome to the Cherry Becker Tax Beat, a conversation about tax that matters.
1: Welcome to this edition of the Cherry Beckert Tax Beat podcast. Today, we're going to talk about some topical developments, some fun updates with the not-for-profit organizations. Um, we We've talked about this before, but many tax professionals and many CPAs in general, financial people in general, serve on boards of tax exempt organizations. But most of the time, uh, all of us and all these folks don't really understand or appreciate all the tax rules that go along with not for profit organizations. So um, we're going to hit some of the current topics today. Joining us, as we've had in the past, is Amanda Adams, our managing director leader of our firm's tax services for non-profit nonprofit organizations. How are you doing today, Amanda?
0: Great. Thanks, Brooks.
1: And where are you sitting?
0: I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, where it is not hot Atlanta today. It's very cold. It's been in the 30s, so. Whoa. Yeah.
1: I'm supposed to be there on Monday, so I hope you uh, warm up just a little bit from there. All right. And as always, uh, joining me is Sarah McGregor from Greenville. How's life treating you, Sarah?
2: Life is good here. It's uh, nice to have uh, some shorter days, some fall days, and and I think we're having some excellent peak leaf weather coming soon.
1: Are you going to any football games?
2: Um, uh, I am not going to football games this fall, but I am so excited, as always, that it's finally football season. So my Saturdays and Sundays And sometimes Thursdays and Fridays are taken up watching football.
1: Well, there have been some great SEC football games this year. Yes, there
2: have. There certainly have.
1: None of them have involved South Carolina, however.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All of the games. Well, no, I won't say that. Some of the games have been exciting.
1: (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's... uh, Uh, Let's dive in here. So uh, the Inflation Reduction Act or IRA of 2022 includes provisions that will bring clean energy tax credits and incentives to not for profits. Uh, We also uh, also following up on our college football banter here um, and college basketball just getting underway as well. Uh, Everybody's hearing all about NIL student athletes and all that's getting a lot of uh, attention. And we'll talk about those, few other things, um, some of the, some of the more standard fair ones as well. So anyway, so let's start with IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. All right. So Amanda, um, there are significant tax credits. How will these potentially benefit a tax-exempt entity that's not even paying taxes?
0: Sure. So in the past, a lot of times, exempt organizations were not benefiting from these credits unless they had uh, unrelated business income tax that they could offset the credit with. Or sometimes they could partner with you know, for-profit entities who might work with them on a project and potentially charge them less uh, because they would get to benefit from the credits. So now under this new act, these credits are refundable. And so exempt organizations can get a tax refund even when they do not owe tax. Um, so that's definitely a great benefit if they're looking into any of these projects. Yeah,
2: right. and that, I think the credits are transferable too, so they can uh, transfer the credit to someone else uh, to to benefit as well. So suddenly they're they're worth something to a tax exempt organization where they weren't before.
1: Yeah, and while we're on this topic, I can't let it pass. Uh, you know, we still got the uh, Employee Retention Act, the ERC. Uh, Employee retention credit, excuse me, uh, ERC, and um, you know we are continuing to find more and more not-for-profit entities that can take advantage of that. And again, that goes against payroll taxes for the most part, and so lots of opportunity on that tax incentive as well. So if you haven't, if you hadn't taken a look at that as a not-for-profit, you need to. All right.
2: Oh, great. So another portion of the Inflation Reduction Act is sort of the other side of the equation, not the incentives and the credits available to taxpayers, but sort of the, the, the revenue raising side. And that includes uh, new funding for the IRS and many billions of dollars that are coming their way uh, to, to kind of close the cap tax gap between what people um, say they owe and pay and what they really owe and should pay. Um, so Amanda, again, we're talking about tax-exempt organizations, but what impact do you see this having on on nonprofit organizations?
0: Well, I think one of the main challenges that the IRS has is its antiquated technology. So I'm hoping that they will spend the majority of this budget on upgrading their technology systems, Um, exempt organizations have a lot of trouble lately with the IRS and their information being updated properly in a timely manner. And a lot of this has to do with these old systems that are not speaking well across the various divisions of the irs so i think that would definitely be a positive in that if they can get these systems working right then you know exempt organizations should hope to see a lot less in the way of notices or improper information about themselves hopefully they will also have some more skilled trained professionals picking up the phone so that when we call to ask questions, there will be someone there that can help us. Um, You know, it's hard to say whether this will result in more examinations for exempt organizations. I know one focus has certainly been in trying to use information gathered in other parts of the IRS, like for high net worth individuals that may be contributing or otherwise interacting with their private foundations, they may be better able to do that as the technology improves.
2: Well, we, I hope this doesn't lead to more examinations, but um, but thinking through that, you have some information or you've collected some information on uh, examinations from 2021 and some of the results. Can you tell us a little bit about the different kinds of examinations and, and some of those uh, key results that you you've seen come through there?
0: So the examination rate as a percentage of exempt organizations is still still fairly low, only at about 0.17% of the entire exempt organization universe. And that means that there were about 3,300 um, cases closed during that fiscal year. And of those, there were uh, just less than 100 proposed revocations of exempt status um, but mainly what they were looking at from a data driven perspective which is the information presented on the 990s were looking at filing requirements whether people were filing the right form that they needed to file or not filing at all and then also looking at unrelated business income reported on the 990 t And then they also have examinations that are focused on a specific strategy, and so those strategies for the most recent year available were looking at hospital organizations where their expenses from their unrelated business activities greatly exceeded income, so uh, obviously they're questioning whether the expense allocations were correct or. You know, whether these really were unrelated activities and then also looking at social clubs that had investment income as well as non member UBI to report and making sure that they're not reducing their taxable investment income by losses on the non member activities. And then um, also looking at private benefit and enormous. So again, that's looking you know at whether insiders are being paid excessive compensation or otherwise taking advantage of uh, an exempt organization's assets. And then they're also looking at exempt organizations that used to be for-profits that have since converted to nonprofits and qualified for exempt status, presumably to be sure they are still operating uh, as exempt organizations and haven't reverted back to their for-profit ways.
1: Oh, that would never happen. Never, ever. (laughs) All right. So, um, Form 23EZ which may be a misnomer of a form. But anyway, uh, the 1023EZ has been in the news, at least financial news lately. So what's going on with that, Amanda?
0: So, the ten twenty three EZ was created um, just a few years ago to help the IRS with their backlog of exemption applications. So this was designed um, to help them manage the ninety thousand applications they typically get on an annual basis. so the the full ten twenty three um, has a lot of information that's disclosed, attached, and you know takes uh, you know the typical IRS agent a while to get through. The 1023EZ, which was meant for very small organizations seeking exempt status, typically, you know, their revenue has to be less than 50000 annually. There's the organizing documents are not required to be provided. The, the box in which you describe the charitable activities of the organization, it has to be like 200 characters or less, so it's very short. Um, so really does not require much on the IRS's part to to move that exemption application through the process and get it granted. The issue is that um, there have been some recent cases in the news of people taking advantage of this system. There was one individual who um, submitted like 90 of these applications that were all approved and these were not legitimate charities. They had names that sounded like ones that you might be familiar with, you know, including those names, um, but really were just shams to to you know, swindle people out of donations. So the IRS really is under fire for whether this process is achieving the right goals. And yes, it's moving things quickly through the system, but it's also resulting in some organizations that should not have exempt status.
1: Right, right. Well, certainly when you're looking at the annual 990, I understand an EZ or a postcard approach, 1023 EZ. Again, that that seems like a much more difficult proposition. Um, yep. for sure all right so now here's a topic i can get excited about so sports back to sports college football college hoops um name and image and likeness uh nil uh, i wonder how many people can actually identify what nil stands for right now but i assure you every sports fan knows what knows what the topic means but there's a lot of
2: donors that know what that means too a (laughs) lot
1: of yeah well and i could spend a whole podcast talking about you know the issues you know just in the big picture i mean to me you know there's a fairness issue of the athletes getting paid and but there's also you know this definitely is going to lead to the rich getting richer i think when you look at big time football and basketball but Mm -hmm. be that as it may um That's not for us to tackle on this. We're about taxes. So uh, our firm does a lot of work with universities, colleges, higher education, their foundations. That's one of our, uh, you know, one of our most prominent niches in this not-for-profit space. So what are you seeing in this, with this issue, Amanda?
0: So I think that, you know, some, just like in anything else, there are some, you know, institutions that are on the forefront of this, you know, they're they're kind of being aggressive and getting out there and, and, you know, moving forward with the times while there are others that kind of want to wait and see, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to be the consequences, um, you know, they want to understand that before they dip their toe in the water. So I think the issue that institutions have to consider is that, you know, they're exempt organization based on, you know, educational purposes. Um, The promotion of amateur sports is also a 501c3 purpose. So when we have athletes who are, you know, being compensated, then that kind of raises the question of, you know, one, is this still an educational purpose? Is this You know, are these professionals? Um, Are we kind of going outside of our exempt status if we participate in um, a joint venture or some other type of organization that's going to partner with these student athletes and others, you know, to provide compensation for, you know, these kinds of things. So I think it's, you know, like anything else, we'll just have to wait and see, because while it may feel like. you know, this isn't something they should participate in. There certainly have been exceptions made for institutions in the past, such as, you know, the whole qualified sponsorship rules all came about because of, you know, college sports and people wanting to pay um, to sponsor those and for broadcasting rights. And so there was an exception carved out so that there would not be unrelated business income for certain sponsorship payments. So it's possible that you know if there are people that really want to promote this and push this that if a tax consequence comes down the road there could be some kind of exception made if if that's what the prevailing sentiment is
1: so let's, can we kind of bifurcate this issue um can can a foundation actually pay make an NIL payment the actual college foundation or the sports foundation can they
2: make an NIL payment
1: themselves is that or this is solely from outside corporations? From what, I,
2: from what I've seen is most of them are setting up a separate organization just to handle the uh, NIL funding and keep it separate from all of the existing uh, athletic foundations and other supporting organizations of a college or university. Um, to sort of insulate it from from that and and protect those amanda is that what you're seeing as well
0: yeah and so there are some that are set up as separate nonprofits, and then there are some that are set up as you know potential you know taxable joint ventures where they're just you know a partnership and then there are some that are just totally separate the university isn't participating right, in yeah, it yeah, in any yeah. way either
1: yeah yeah the local pizza company is paying you a couple thousand dollars put your picture on their uh delivery man t-shirt all that stuff yeah that's easy but um, so I, I guess the, for me a big takeaway is you know if you're playing the space I think you know looking at your entity structure would be a very prudent step and I and I um, I yeah I'm very curious about the ability to get the not-for-profit you know the exemption status on the separate NIL entity and how that would fly you know, well you just
2: fill out one of those 1023EZs. Uh, yeah,
1: the 1023EZ, that's what it is. That's that, right. There
2: what... brings back one of, one of our earlier points. Well, right. speaking of all that complexity, uh, Amanda, I know you're getting ready for the November 15 deadline. Uh, what are you seeing with respect to alternative investments, which is a, a kind a nice name for some really uh, well, onerous tax reporting?
1: Well, yeah, well, my, my, I'll just ask, what's the problem? I mean, I'm on the board <laughs> and, the, the, and you know, they just... The investment advisor told me I got some really high return investments, uh, and they're all foreign. They're all alternative. No problem, but you're tax exempt. No problem. And that, and that the right, in that right, Amanda?
0: That's certainly something that's said, um, but it's not the <laughs> truth, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> So we have, you know, kind of two main issues that we see. One is that, you know, uh, nonprofits, of course, are still subject to tax on their unrelated business income. Um, So if this alternative investment is in the structure of a partnership, then the character of the partnership's activities flow through to the investors so that if, you know, there is unrelated business income, either from the operation of of a business or from Uh, debt financed property, you know, real estate uh, or investments purchased on margin potentially, that will flow through on the K-1 that's sent to the investor. There will be a disclosure there about unrelated business income. But again, if the people that are receiving those K-1s are not uh, aware that, you know, there could be unrelated business income on this K-1, um, you know, I'm hearing more and more that, you know, that they're not even mailed out. You just have to log into the portal to go download the K-1. So, if nobody, you know, even does that, then, you know, you're not aware that there would be an issue. The other thing is that any indirect investments, um, you know, owned by the partnership could create some foreign filing issues, if that partnership is invested um, in foreign entities, there may be kind of a, a, a reporting requirement for indirect investment. And then if the organization owns direct foreign investments, they won't even get a K-1 and they could potentially have a foreign filing requirement and not even be aware and not have any, you know, anything coming in the mail or email to tell them Hey, you're invested in a foreign corporation, and so you may need to file this Form 926 to report your capital contribution made this year.
2: Yeah, and those penalties for, or particularly for the international reporting, can certainly uh, uh, get up there very, very quickly, and are pretty, um, uh, pretty awful to to be assessed and and receive that kind of notice. So, um, so let's look forward a little bit. Um, Thinking about there's a couple of pieces of legislation that have been introduced. Who knows if they'll ever get uh, passed, but you want to talk about a couple of those uh, pieces of legislation you're keeping an eye on?
0: Yes, so the Universal Giving Pandemic Response and Recover Act is hoping to extend the universal charitable deduction for non-itemizers through 2022. Um, And the reason that's important is that when the standard deduction was increased so significantly by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it really reduced the number of taxpayers who um, actually needed to itemize their deductions, and therefore they were not getting the benefit of the charitable contributions that they made as a deduction. And so the the there was sort of, uh, you know, an on top, you know, deduction um, that was permitted, but then that expired. So the idea behind this proposed legislation is to extend it and to increase it um, so that those individuals taking the standard deduction can also get the benefit of this additional charitable deduction on top of that. The other one is the Nonprofit Sector Strength and Partnership Act of 2022. And this one's unusual because it's not really um, about deductions or tax benefits. It's more about increasing communication between the nonprofit sector and the government agencies to improve the data collection about nonprofits as well as the awareness of how laws affect the sector. So you know hopefully that would be an advantage so that you know when things are being considered they will be able to take the nonprofit sector into account as to will this affect them negatively or not. So like for example, um, you know, the the taxation of the provision of parking benefits to employees. I think they had no idea how that was really going to impact, you know, churches and other exempt organizations so negatively. And so uh, hopefully this would prevent something like that from happening in the future.
2: Uh, As if they didn't ask for enough information on the Form 990 as it is, uh, now we want even more information, sharing information, uh, as as they say. Collaboration. That's it. Collaboration.
1: All right. <laughs> all right. All right. All all good stuff. All good stuff. All right. So Amanda, the force yours. Do you have any other final comments or observations you would like to make?
0: Just, I think again, you know, making sure that, you know, you're up to date on your 990 filing requirements. It's amazing how many times, you know, people will come to us and say, oh, you know, the treasurer said he was taking care of these filings. And now all of a sudden we've got this notice that our exempt status has been revoked. Um, So definitely make sure that that's, you know, something that's confirmed and and checked.
1: Uh, Remind us again for a calendar year, tax-exempt organization, what are the due dates?
0: So, the original due date is May 15th, and then the uh, an automatic six-month extension can be obtained, making the final due date November 15th.
1: All righty. Sarah, anything you'd like to add on?
2: Uh, I'm just glad to see in the Inflation Reduction Act, they really gave some thought about how uh, nonprofit organizations, tax-exempt organizations, and government agencies can benefit from these energy credits. I believe they'll be um, a good proponent and an advocate, and can move this forward uh, on with all of the capital and campuses and um, other equipment and things that nonprofits have.
1: Yeah, excellent point. Yes, I like the energy credits. I like the ERC. I like 179D also. But anyway, mm-hmm. so. Lots of good tax incentives, even in the not-for-profit space. All right, let's call this a wrap. Um, it's been a you know enjoyable discussion here on hot topics and not-for-profit tax. Um, thank you for listening in. A quick disclaimer, we're not providing tax advice on this podcast. Please consult with your tax advisor, hopefully at Cherry Beckert, with your specific tax issues or to discuss information from today's podcast, specifically reach out to Amanda Adams at CBH.com for -for not-for-profit tax issues. Check out our firm's website at CBH.com for the latest guidance and materials on this and other tax and business topics. Uh, This concludes today's podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, our listeners, for spending your time with us. We truly appreciate it. Let's call it a day and go forth in peace.